Hello and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast with Ben Atkinson. I am delighted to be joined by functional medicine practitioner, Dr. Jeff Mullen. This podcast goes through the ins and outs of skin health with more of a focus on acne and eczema and what we can do to improve these conditions. We talk about genetics, diet, supplementation, which collagen powder is best for skin health and much, much more. If you are struggling with skin issues, want to keep your skin youthful or know someone that does, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Jeff Mullen, so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi, Ben. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It's been a long time coming, and I know we had some technical difficulties before we just started, so thank you for being so patient with that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. This is something which I have a huge interest around, which is skin health. I've had my own skin issues when I was younger, and it's great to have an expert on the show to dive into these many different ailments and how to treat them, and also the reasons why they occur in the first place. Skin health is just health a lot of the times because that's just the bit that you can see and and actually when we come to it when we come to treating all these things actually it's not a skin targeted treatment but it's a more system-wide treatment that comes to but skin's a great great way of looking to see how someone's health is do you feel more energy or less energy you can kind of it's quite subjective whereas you either have a skin condition or you don't it's a really really useful tool for use in functional health yeah, for sure. And it's one of those things when you talk about energy, that's not visible to a lot of people unless you're around someone and they're really dragging their heels. When skin health, it's normally very obvious. Yeah, we know that you know, people will have, you know, say, issues if they've got psoriatic arthropathy, you know, they've got sore joints, etc. But how bad their plaques are, how blared up they are, that's a pretty clear indicator of of what's happening with their disease at that time. So, you know, without having to go and look at lots of kind of fancy different, you know, immune interleukins and all the rest or, or, or T-cells, you can, you can actually just look at the skin and tell what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get into this area? Because what was your background and then functional medicine? I mean, I've met very few practitioners, which are functional medicine practitioners that actually specialize in skin health. Yeah, so I'd um, trained in NHS, um, qualified as a surgeon, trained here in London, that's at King's College. Oh, yeah. And then in 2007, I left to set up a skin clinic where we did a bit of skin surgery, we did some cosmetic dermatology, did some aesthetics and lots of laser treatments, etc. And spent a bit of time out in the US and with a, a few clinics out there with some dermatologists, some, some surgeons. And over the years, we would see a lot of the, not the severe derm issues, you know, we always send lots to the dermatologists, but actually... The really common ones, so eczema and acne, the two most common skin conditions, and quite badly treated in the UK because if it's really bad, fine, you can see a dermatologist. If it's not that bad, they're kind of pushed off mm. to the side. But 80% of people will have an issue with acne at some stage. In kids, it's probably 30% of, of kids have some degree of eczema, and a little bit less than adults, it's 2 or 3%. So these really common skin conditions were just not well treated. And so we started seeing a lot of these. And back in the early days, like a lot of doctors, see condition, diagnose it, give X medication, and that will work for a while. And in skin conditions, you can be sure they come back again. And we, we, we treat all these. And then that's really what got me into functional medicine. It's kind of like, is there, is there actually a way we can understand why people are getting these? Sure, I know there's genetic components, 
but not 100% of people with those genes get that condition. So you know, what's, what's the missing link here? And that whole idea of right, understand the function on a deeper level, and then you might be able to actually hit a target a little bit easier. And as you know, Ben, we're not talking medicines here. We're talking, we're talking nutrition, we're talking lifestyle, et cetera. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is, that is fascinating. You know, eczema and acne, as well as other conditions, but they, they are so common. Like everyone knows someone who's experienced these things. For me, like when I was younger, acne was something I, and I, I suffered with. And I don't use that term lightly. Um, I ended up being on Accutane, which is, in my, well, in, in my understanding is the kind of like last resort in terms of treatment. Um, but that did seem to help initially. But what happened as I got older is I realized that I'd still have flare-ups, but they were mainly down to like diet and lifestyle. Um, one of the triggers for me was, uh, was dairy. Yeah, we know it's those hormones mm. that increase turnover rate. So in acne, you need three things. You need a high turnover rate of skin cells. So that's what's going to clog the pores. The sebum, something's going on with the sebum. Is it changed viscosity? You're producing lots of it. And then the acne bacteria itself in, in the skin. So what increases that skin turnover rate? Well, testosterone is a big one. In puberty, you have these big surges of testosterone, increase this skin turnover rate, probably not got the best diet in the world as well. So some of these essential fatty acids are missing and you end up getting these getting these clogged pores. And so look, it's, it's difficult in teenagers because those hormone surges are needed. You know, they're needed to make everything grow. Unfortunately, it makes the skin grow and turn over quickly. One of the messengers that they do this through is something called um, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, which we're all very well aware of. And if you're in that group of people that are more likely to develop acne, mm-hmm. that increase in IGF-1 from certain foodstuffs can be enough to push you into actually having the condition. And so when I tell people, dairy is the number one thing I tell people, look, if you're suffering from acne, cut it out, certainly whilst you're suffering. I'm not saying don't have it forever. I hate telling people to be a go on restrictive food diets, but cut back on it. And the reason being that the casein and the whey proteins in dairy, if you're a regular dairy drinker, you'll have 20 to 30% higher IGF. So that's usually enough to make someone you know, increase and have acne. So that's kind of one of the one of the big ones, Ben. We also know what's the other big driver? Sugar. Sugar pushes up IGF as well. So that old myth, and, and I still hear lots of dermatologists kind of go, oh no, you know, that doesn't make any difference to, to acne. You know, you just need to go on racketing. It's like, sure, that will reduce your sebum production by about 98%. Sure, you're not going to get acne when you're on that, but there's many more steps in the ladder. And as a doctor, I, I, I rarely use antibiotics. I, it, you know, I've had to use antibiotics twice for two bad flare-ups for patients in the last four years because we know all the knock-on effects they have and their short-term fixes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, they never seem to have, they never seem to move the needle with me. Or if they did, they did initially, and then it always came back like a couple of months after, after treatment. And they seem to have repeated bounce as well. So I always have... I think I can't remember the exact form of antibiotics that I had, but I remember trying one and then another and then going back to the other. And it was just like, where does it end? Um, And that's a shame because you were, I think you hit the nail on the head, like testosterone. It always happens during puberty or did for me. Um, And it seems to be ubiquitous, 
even in women, which is an interesting one as well, because you said one of the drivers is testosterone. Yeah, well, what is the... the driver in women? So, you know, in women, you get, and I've seen really capable professional women in tears in my clinic with frustration. They're in their mm. 30s and 40s, and they've got acne. So, don't underestimate the mental impact that it has on someone's self esteem. Um, and so, with women, again, it's a, it's a hormone imbalance. So, if right. too much estrogen or too little estrogen, so it's the estrogen progesterone testosterone balance so it's all of those things say so it becomes complex and if someone has a lot of estrogen um i tend to i see sometimes i'll use things like dim and so it yeah. helps to reduce some of the estrogen metabolites or excrete them as they should be excreted but also that that dietary advice of cutting out the dairy um cutting out the sugar then it may well be using a topical retinoid to help reduce the sebum. Mm. But again, the omega-3 acids. So we could get into the whole immunology of how omega-3s affect and reduce inflammation in the skin. But um, Let, Let's move on to that a little yeah. bit later because I want to I circle back to dairy because it's quite interesting what you said about IGF-1 because for me, when I think of IGF-1 production, I mean, milk's an interesting one because it's increases IGF-1 and also it's insulin, insulinogenic essentially. Yep, so yep. increases insulin more so than the carbohydrates and protein alone. It has some like strange effect in that regard. I think that's why it's commonly used for like muscle building, yep. but equally proteins and like uh, protein in intake will increase IGF-1, but do not seem, well, in my experience, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, to have the kind of acne inducing effect as something like milk would. Yeah, good point. Look, as you said, with milk, you know, what the glycemic index is what's 31, but mm -hmm. it has an effect. It's an insulin secretagogue that it has an IGF effect of six to seven times higher than that. So, right. you know, it's it's like <laughs> your mega GI. So it, it's it's really strong. The IGF effect really is high. And it's the it's interesting, but it's the protein in the milk that's causing it. It's mm -hmm. not the lactose. Um, so it's the casein and the whey proteins have the secondary effect of driving it. So when you say proteins don't seem to push IGF, it's like, well, it's the milk proteins do. And a lot of those milk proteins are the proteins that are sometimes used in some of the, the bodybuilding products, you know, the whey yes, proteins. of course. But possibly it's the combination of both of those. Exactly. So they almost could have like a combination effect with, with the casein and the whey. I've never really thought of it in that way before. There, also, there's a this interesting part of milk where it has something like 60 different natural hormones in it not necessarily harmful ones but which we actually don't know the full effects of in humans because for a baby cow yeah so yeah well exactly so the peptides the exosomes that are in milk there's lots of there is along that there is lots of messages packaged in those little mrnas that, that it's telling the body to do certain things with regard to exosomes how do you think they interplay with acne production itself? And is it sebum, which is the, the problem there? The exosomes in milk, from what I've read on Ben, maybe you can tell me better, it's, it's quite theoretical as to what peptides are doing what, you know, what is this information in here? And the research is, is fascinating on them. It's clearly telling the body to do something. And if you, from what we can see, milk is basically a, and it's a growth hormone for, for guys. So it's a growth hormone for us as well. <laughs> it's not dissimilar. It's pushing all of those things that's telling the body grow, proliferate. And that's 
fine if you're trying to go out and bodybuild and all the rest. But if you've got troublesome skin, that's kind of causing issues that you're getting this. The last thing you want is proliferation. You want the opposite. And so you're trying to reduce it back down the other way. Um, but I'd love to know your thoughts on the exercise. Well, I also think it's theoretical as well. Like people always bring it up. I've heard plenty of people, functional medicine doctors, bring up the, the due to the exosomes and peptides that are in milk may be exacerbating the condition, but there seems to be very little evidence that that's actually the case. And it seems to be more the fact that you get this weighing casein and casein potentially being anti-inflammatory, which is causing these flare-ups more so than anything else. Yeah, and I think the, um, the evidence on that is pretty good. I've certainly got a, read a few papers which have measured it pretty well and they know that the function when they looked at it, it was between 20 to 30 percent higher igf in wow. people who are regular dairy drinkers and another interesting one is that skimmed milk's even worse than full fat milk yes because, yeah <laughs> because i don't know if you remember you know i would i'm a little bit older than you are, i'm a bit older than you it's that um skimmed milk used to have that kind of pale bluish color i'm sure you know this so they now add extra milk proteins to skimmed milk because it's not fat to make it look white. So it becomes even higher in casein and protein uh, and whey proteins than full fat milk. And then also you don't have the anti-inflammatory effect of the fat as well. Uh-huh. So if you really want to do your worst with it, with your acne, um, skimmed milk um, is the worst. So that's why I said like just normal milk, if you're going to take anything. And, that, and also why, because it dries IGF a little bit more. There's lots of studies showing that if you're trying to lose weight, skimmed milk is worse for you than full fat milk yeah absolutely and weirdly same with muscle growth so it seems to be that full fat milk milk seems to be a bit more beneficial for muscle growth than skimmed now the underlying mechanisms for that i have no idea um but it might be due to kind of hormones regulating that because in general bodybuilders tend to like reduce their fat and taking up carbohydrates and proteins and it might be that the saturated fats in milk are actually beneficial for hormone production yeah. but yeah I mean, that's something else entirely. That makes yeah. sense. It makes sense. You know, I think the um, removing the fat from milk is is removing a lot of the of the good stuff. Well, it becomes an unnatural product, right? When you yeah. start doing that, um, yeah. which I think is, I mean, we've just indicated to it. But the more unnatural you make something, it seems to be the more negative health consequences that there are. I mean, sugar cane is very different from sugar. Completely agree. You can look at the, at the strong links between processed foods and obesity, for example, as processed foods go up in places like the US. I read recently that in the last decade, calorie in, um, intake in the US, for example, uh, has actually gone down over the last decade, but obesity has gone up by like 14%. So there's a mismatch between calories. Obviously, they have a highly calorific diet, but it's mm. not just that. Yeah, I mean, always multi, multifaceted, multifactorial. I mean, we know that kind of activity level has, has seriously decreased, but also there's lots of studies now showing, like, showing a lower G- glycemic load diet. You can actually have more calories and not put on weight than if you're on one which is highly insulinogenic, high GI, in the region of two to 300 calories, which is doesn't sound a lot, but actually can be quite significant. Yeah, look at that. Hence why, as you say, those high glycemic index foods are just are just a killer. They cause so much issue. They cause so much inflammation, and you know they're not they don't naturally occur in our in our normal food ecosystem. It's a way of 
I suppose food companies hacking what, what your body thinks it likes by putting in that sugar. It's kind of like, yep, that's high calorie, give me more. But I've always been fascinated by the fact that naturally occurring kind of high sugar foods, like say like honey, you, you never sit down and unless you maybe poo bear and, you know, and, <laughs> and, and eat a full pot of honey, your body seems to switch off the craving quite quickly. Don't know if you know why that is. No, I don't know either. I don't know either at all, but that's an interesting one itself. But again, more natural, the product, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. But I, and also because honey is primarily fructose. So there could be an interesting link there, but I don't know enough about it. And going back to the dairy element, and I didn't think I'd focus on this as much, but it's got my brain whirling now. I actually don't seem to get breakouts. And this is, seems to be, for people that I know who suffered from acne, anywhere near to the same extent or at all with sheep and goat's milk. And I was thinking this is a driver like the A1 and A2 casing might yeah. be a problem with that so a1 being the more inflammatory supposedly rather than the a2 and this is due yeah, to the hybrid, yeah. hybridization of cattle changing the proteins that come out in the milk but i don't know whether you had an opinion on that or or a thought it, it absolutely makes sense that one is going to be what drive more igf than another but it's something that's happening on purpose it's not a, a an inflammatory bad result it's it's the casing proteins doing what their function is supposed to do is make you grow yeah um that's why they're, they're, they're triggering it and say possibly the types that are triggered in dairy or in, in cattle which is more potent and say so you're getting that that stronger effect but talking about glycemic index uh, I this is probably not one to go on to because i was looking at the glycemic index of oat milk recently oh yeah uh, which i which i often tell people to, to to take but i think it's what 120 130 it's like a i didn't know that that's really yeah. high <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so uh but but I think I think it's the way it's kind of made with canola oil or certainly some of the commercial ones are um, the homemade version. Um, if you can ever make yourself do it, which my Vicky does occasionally, is it is still pretty good. But I think it's all the enzymatic processes that go on in the commercialized ones. So like everything, you dig deep enough, and not everything is is quite as perfect as it seems. Yeah, I mean you can't milk. Like, <laughs> can you milk an almond? That whole thing. <laughs> Moving on to clinical manifestations, because we talked about acne, but we've kind of not spoken about how it actually uh, manifests in people. Because some people can get kind of pustulates and boils, ones which are underneath the skin, and also yeah. blackheads. And there seems to be like a, a difference there between what they actually are and how they present. What are the reasons behind that? Or are there any that we know of? Yeah, look, there is. There's lots of different types of acne, and you kind of see them more commonly at, at different stages. So you can go from the little white bumps you get on your skin or on the forehead, quite commonly, comedogenic acne. And they all come down to the three factors we talked about, but the whole way through to mild pustules, severe pustules, you can get cysts under the skin or lots of cystic acne. And there's, there's different causes for that. Often the nodular cystic acne, uh, it tends to be the more hormonal-driven acne. Mm -hmm. When it comes to nutrients, linoleic acid plays a really fascinating part in when it comes to comedogenic acne. And there's been studies that have been done that, that show that low linoleic acid basically seems to cause comedogenic acne in a, in a large percentage of people. And it's as simple as correcting it. And so GLA, either in, even in primrose oil or, or borage oil, even better. Uh, and it's, it seems to be the, one of the key 
fatty essential fatty acids that allows the other fatty acids to kind of get into the skin where they're important in a ceramides and important in, in that kind of acidic skin barrier, et cetera. So when that's lacking, it seems the viscosity of the sebum changes and then that's wow. when they get, get those bumps. So for a lot of people, that's be quite an easy win to, yeah. without having to go down medication. I did not know that. So, so just for clarity there, because you said linoleic acid, is that gamma linoleic acid? Because gamma linoleic acid is in primrose oil and things like that. Linoleic acid is essentially an omega-6 fatty acid. Um, GLA is definitely important for, for skin inflammation. And clinically, my kind of go-tos for acne is I put people these days on krill you know, often. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. tolerate it a little bit better. We've got phospholipids as well. Uh, I stick them on krill, I put them on GLA, Vitamin B, because mm. you tend to get that TH2, TH1 rebalancing. Right, um, yes. Definitely. Can, can you dive into that a little bit more, sorry, with the TH1, TH2, and okay. why that's a driver of acne when it's dysregulated? It, it was back in the 80s, wasn't it, when they, when they did the mice studies that first kind of came up with the TH1, TH2 kind of helper cell theories that if certain types of T cells that activate certain pathways of other types of T helper cells that activate others. And, you know, one tends to help us fight off viruses and bacteria and cancer cells, etc. You know, the other T helper two are very much the antibody driven kind of, um, you know, immunity that's, that's needed. And so both of these are really important. If, if one gets unbalanced over the other, it, it causes issues. We want them mm-hmm. to be both be well, well balanced and certainly in autoimmune type conditions and i know we kind of go off a little bit tight so we're going to talk about things like eczema or atopic dermatitis yeah i think it's, we can weave these in these are all kind of interconnected in one way or another aren't yeah, they yeah of course they are you know and say it's it's autoimmune it's antibodies it's ige mediated it's that atopy the asthma the rhinitis and uh the the eczema you know are all linked together and that's very much a tea helper to driven um, mechanism and so eczema is one of my big ones where it's kind of like eczema sure you can treat it on the on the on the local level yes kind of reduce that lesion um and there's a couple of you know fantastic products out there you know steroids i'm certainly not a fan of but there are other kind of you know immune you know inhibitors like tacrolimus which is really successful and mm-hmm. i think i was talking about there's a new um product is the advocate trials in the us that are just about to finish their phase three trials whether it's lebrokizumab which is a biologic and that's an interleukin 13 inhibitor and again this is all t-cell inactivation tacrolimus interleukin 2 blocker it's a t-cell inhibitor and yes you can have a cream and put it on your skin but ultimately there's something going on with your inflammatory mediators they're telling you to do something when you get this chronic cycle of inflammation that gets dysregulated it's trying to can you reset or rebalance that to stop that chronic condition we can do that with pretty strong medications tons of stuff that you can do it with diet lifestyle to, to really kind of rebalance um, that th1 th2 and so things like cold therapy etc you know which is quite fascinating You've mentioned a few things there, which I'd love to pick up on because of a kind of a light bulb moment when you mentioned the link between TH1 and rhinitis and asthma 
and things of that nature because quite often I see people have all three um, or they suffer from all three. It's not just one, which is quite interesting or they're quite prone to getting them uh, cyclically. And I'm just wondering there whether if you deal, because in functional medicine, we always talk about the root cause. And then if you deal with that TH1 dysregulation, whether all those kinds of ailments just clear up, but that's not something which I've seen. I was wondering if, if you've seen that in the past. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It's kind of high levels of the TH3 dominance that you get. And that's an IG kind of mediated, you know, we know what's going on. We, we, and we know that you know, genetically some people are predisposed to producing more of these. And so for those people, rebalancing it is really important. And, mm. you know, that's why, you know, when it comes to TH3 balancing, gut is really important. Um, and gut and skin, you know, I've tried to work out, you know, where is the link? Where does it really, where does it really work? Because I've, I've read so much, so many different theories. Possibly one of the, the ones what's most kind of convincing is that you've got something called the toll-like receptors in the skin. Specifically, some of them are very, you know, on the keratinocytes in particular, are sensitive um, to lipopolysaccharides and bacteria. That seems to trigger the keratinocytes. So there is a clear link as to gut issues, leaky gut or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. you know, but certainly that presence of LPS, which we can measure in the blood, yep. triggering these keratinocytes and they go off in their inflammatory crazy cascade um, afterwards. And that's activating that T helper two side. There's no single root cause, is there? And, you know, but we know where we like to start a lot of the times. And if you've got an unhappy gut, you're going to have unhappy skin um, as well. In a number of patients I've seen, like who have gluten issues, and I'm going, yeah, you know those really bad spots you get on your bottom, dermatitis or petiform? To clear those up, you just stop eating gluten. You don't touch your skin at all. They're like, oh, yeah, so there is a link. It's like, yeah, of course there's a link. I think the, the gut-skin axis is, uh, is so fascinating because I've heard um, that people always talk about, like, if you have a skin issue, it's a gut issue. Like, don't touch your skin until you've sorted that out because <laughs> then you don't know what is, what's driving it. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of time there's definitely some inflammation issues going on. I know we bang on about the gut a lot. There are other ones out there as well. You know, mm. I think TH2 dominance are certainly linked to low levels of glutathione, and there's lots of reasons that can happen. Mm. You know, so N-acetylcysteine is kind of one of my go-tos when it comes to improving skin health. And actually, you know, people talk about vitamin C and vitamin E, but actually the main antioxidant in the skin is glutathione. The other vitamin C replenishes vitamin E and they kind of have this interplay. But it seems to be when you fix those glutathione levels, that, and that seems to certainly help. And or things like zinc, which this glutathione peroxidase, all of these things reduce acne scores. And again, done on RCTs that, you know, they can actually show that glutathione will help your acne. So the other things, vitamin D, is the other one that we know we use the balance TH1 and TH2. Yeah, vitamin D has a yeah has a massive impact on skin. Um, so so that's you know that's a that's a big one. I'm always thinking like when people go out in the sun, and this is anecdotal, so you're gonna have to forgive me, but it's interesting nonetheless. <laughs> when people go out in the sun, their their skin tends to clear up. 
um, more so. And I'm always thinking there must be loads of different reasons why that is the case. But I'm thinking the sun actually helps you utilize vitamin A more effectively and vitamin A is essential for skin health as well as vitamin D as well production. And I'm thinking it has multiple different reasons why it would clear up your skin. Um, although vitamin D supplementation seems to be hugely beneficial by itself as well. Skin, sun and skin's controversial, you know, when it comes oh, to acne. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, you know... Overdoing it. Bit, you know, some people, their skin gets really inflamed um, in the sun, um, and some people do really well when they put on sunscreens with um, when they've got acne. Um, that's probably a slightly different mechanism as well, which mm -hmm. I may as well explain as I touch on it. When you wear a UV, one of the reasons your skin feels so soft is that because you're blocking out the UV light, you, your skin, so the dead skin layer is called the stratum corneum. It doesn't get as thick. And so you end up with this thinner dead skin layer. So, you know, think of the ladies with the leathery skin and Benidorm, you know, with that crocodile skin. Yeah. When you wear sunscreen, it's the exact opposite. So you have this really thin skin. So there's a, quite a significant cosmetic benefit. And it's probably that thinner stratum corneum is, is one of the benefits of, of UV. But as you say, you know, more vitamin A, more vitamin D will help. Um, but on balance, I'd say a lot of people's skin, I would say, I don't know the actual figures, but there's a real split between people whose skin gets worse in the sun. Some people um, get gets better in the sun. That makes sense. When we were talking about the vitamin D, um, what kind of doses are you using? And are you looking at um, just getting vitamin D up into the reference range? Or are you using kind of super, well, mega doses of vitamin D if the benefits go above and beyond just correcting a deficiency, if that makes sense? Cool. Well, you know, I don't know if you're teaming up here for a plug, but like, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, with human people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've been doing to because I got kind of frustrated um, as to in two things. I was banging on about omega threes and vitamin D. You know, my we started measuring them. So so we send them off. We we measure we measure kind of the basic ones that are important. And and it, it's it's fascinating. It, you know, ninety eight percent of the omega threes that we've measured are come back as 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 low. But sometimes people need to see the number to believe it. Mm -hmm. um, so with vitamin D, again, looked at all the literature on this, and actually one of the most convincing ones that I had was that athletes um, continue to improve in performance up to a level of 80 nanomoles per liter. So you're still getting benefit, and sure, you're not deficient in a normal reference range in the, in the UK is 50, but that 50 to 80 is kind of, well, why wouldn't I just boost it a little bit more, have a little bit more energy? Especially if you're a guy in your 40s, we know that there's vitamin D receptors on the Leydig cells in the testes, so mm -hmm. you know a little bit higher testosterone as well. Um, and it doesn't boost testosterone, but if your vitamin D is low, it often links to, to low testosterone. So, uh, so we tend to, and then we started looking at a lot of the genetics as well around it, um, and so that's we built it in. So we're looking at VDR receptors and GC, etc. So by the time you kind of go right, well look. The average level should be 80, but you know, those people with some of the genetic variations, they should probably be a little bit higher. You know, right, so should we test everybody? You know, well, actually, if you keep everybody between 100 and 150, you're, you're safe. But um, I always um, pretty clear with people that you know, if, you, if you are running at those levels, it's really important to have K2 in there as well. Um, and 
you know, there's different types of K2s, you know, there's the natural MK7 K2s is what, what we use. And, and the reason just and for listeners that we, we say that um, high levels of vitamin D will drive calcium into your arteries, you'll calcify your arteries, K2 pushes it into the bones where it should be. And so hence why there was even some studies that high dose vitamin D can increase fractures, but you add in the K2 and actually get the health benefits from it. So um, I don't, what, where, do you, where do you like to run your vitamin D? So yeah, I, I am the same 80 nanograms or, or a little bit higher actually is, is what I'll go for. I'll always have it there. But to be honest, for me to maintain that, even in summer months, is 4,000 IU of vitamin D, yep. um, which is significantly higher than the recommended daily amount that I'm meant to be taking of 400. But um, I, cannot, I cannot boost it any higher than that unless I'm, I take massive doses. So Ben, you're not alone. So we have done hundreds of vitamin D tests and 4,000 units is pretty much the happy medium um, to, to, to get you into that zone. Um, and we started off, we used to alter it by weight and all the rest. And it's it, it, you know, a, a 90 kilogram man and a 70 kilogram woman appear to pretty much end up in the same place when they both take 4,000 um, 4, units. So um, and we often will give it with like an omega-3 or a krill. So you know, try to help that fat absorb a bit better. As you know, before meals always good. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely with the K2, you know, the K2 is really interesting because a lot of people, like I've spoken to some of my friends and some nutritionists, which uh, promote plant-based diets, I say plant-based, vegetarian or vegan diets. And the issue there is that you are getting vitamin K1, but not necessarily K2. Um, and K1 is essential. I mean, you know this already, but for, for everyone who's listening, like it helps with clotting, but will not help with the deposition of the calcium back into the bones. Um, and that is something which I think is not really widely known, but should be if you're trying to, if you're taking high doses of vitamin D. Yeah. And, you know, I think particularly for, for young women in that we know that maximizing your you know, your calcium density in your 30s is the biggest protection um, against osteoporosis based menopause. So, you know, it's not something you need to worry about when you're older. It's something you really need to nail now and easily done with, you know, the right type of K2. Yeah, 100%. Um, but, but can you make K2 from natto? Isn't Yes. Yeah, you absolutely can. And that was something I was just going to mention so that you can ferment. So all fermented foods, if they're live, they should have some level of K2 within them. However, you know, I don't actually know if it's MK7, but I need to check because there's loads of different types of, of K2, MK4, MK7. I think it's like MK11. I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop there because I'm going to forget the others. Um, but I'm wondering what forms would be in the fermented food products in compared to like what you'd find in eggs, which would be a mixture. Okay, I will, I will link to that in the show notes because that, that could be interesting for some people. Um, but natto is quite interesting because if you look at um, natto in and the rates of natto ingestion, so, sorry, or consumption and the rates of osteoporosis. Um, in those populations that consume natto as part of their regular diet, and it's just vastly lower than westernized populations. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, well, really cool. I will link that? to that study as well. Yeah. What countries were was that? Is that? You know, I, I am I am not going to 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 say that. I will send you the paper because I'm cool, absolutely cool. sure I'll find it. I've got it saved in my uh, in my OneNote. Yeah, and well, I do know it's it's kind of like a lot of conditions. It's not about getting to 
the cliff edge before you start doing something about it it's in a just making sure you don't get there in the first place and yeah, you know, osteoporosis is um is an easy one and vitamin d3 with k2 as as i agree four thousand units is pretty much the sweet spot mm. um certainly if you live in the northern hemisphere um uh, you know we use much higher doses to correct people but that's the maintenance that most people seem to sit in that and that's kind of sweet zone it. yeah and i'm not to focus on this too much because i, I think we've we've uh it's, it's, it's nice to focus on it a little bit because it shows that vitamin d also not only benefit beneficial for skin health but also protects you in a lot of other ways as well and um, but yep, yep. You just need to come and measure <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it you just um, need to constantly be talking to human people <laughs> the reason we're done there was that we were telling people to do things and it's kind of like well look how are we checking this how do we know that actually that has worked we've got to this level and omega-3s have such a significant you know inflammatory impact mm. on on the skin and you know so you know we now know that you know things like dha inhibit <clears throat> these toll-like receptors kind of really affects that whole nf kappa b inflammatory pathway you know that's that's the real mechanism as to how they affect eczema how they affect psoriasis how they affect acne do you say the dha um, or the epa it's uh, the dha um <gasps> seems to be the one that um that has the the mechanism i have to check of epa as well but it seems to be what was always dha yeah fascinating i wasn't sure you know, we should talk about, like I say, omega-3s a little bit in that, you know, that difference between short-chain omega-3s and long-chain omega-3s, which, you know, completely different. When people talk about omega-3s from flaxseed and chia, you know, it's, it's a lovely idea, but, you know, we know that conversion rate to the stuff that we as humans can use is, is a bit pathetic. You know? Yeah, is for it, sure. And it varies massively. My conversion is awful genetically. <laughs> or really, well, you know, I think most people, on average, they said it was 5%. Yeah. Um, but chickens are very good at it. So feed your chickens the flax seeds, then eat their eggs. Um, and like if anyone seems a listener, they've probably heard me bang on about this so many times. Um, <laughs> so average eggs today have about five milligrams of omega-3, but if you feed them flaxseed, or you can now, some of the big supermarkets have omega fortified eggs, mm-hmm. you know, it's up to 150, 200 milligrams. You know, what a nice way to... Yeah. You're not a big fan of, of fish oils, then you know get get the right type of eggs, or um, if you're lucky enough to have space for your own chickens, um, you know, feed them feed them flax, and 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 they'll they'll convert the the short chain stuff into stuff that you can use. Yeah, or eat oily fish. I mean, I found like even just making sure I have oily fish, it has to be three times a week actually for me to maintain. Um, I know some people say two, but I can't, I can't seem to do that in terms of omega three index. What have you got yours down to? Oh, I can't remember now. It's been a while since I tested it, but when I was testing it regularly, um, my omega three index was uh, I'm not going to say. But if people are interested, I can actually put a screenshot in the show notes because that'd be interesting for people. But it was um, I remember looking at it and tracking it over time, and it was rubbish at one point. Just, just terrible. And I was like, I'm, I'm eating fish. I eat fish every week, but it was only once. And I needed to up it significantly. And actually, salmon, um, EPA and DHA-wise, actually isn't anywhere near as high as something like sardines or mackerel. So that change as well made a significant impact. Yeah, I, 
you know, mine was pretty high when I first measured it. Um, and you know, I think mine was about 11.2. Yeah, and, that is high. Know, and, but actually, that was nowhere near as high as most of the people we measure. And mm. so I think that average is about 12.4. Um, so we, we measure lots of them. And I would say it took, you know, of taking 750 milligrams of DHA and EPA omega-3s, um, probably about three months to get it down to around six. So it comes down, it improves really slowly. Oh, are we talking um, about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio here? Or, yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, so so like tweaking the diet and you know taking a, a good quality eating fish and all the rest. So I, I find that most people take some three to four months getting it down into into healthy levels. Um, and you know it's very rare to find the person who's who's already got got pretty healthy levels um, already. But it makes makes your skin good, makes you improves your exercise recovery, brain matter in the brain. What's it? Thirty percent of it makes up. You know it's. It's it's a fascinating molecule that clearly we you know humans need it for for good health. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of skin health, I know it has an anti-inflammatory component, which many people will be familiar with, but it seems to be systemic. How does it affect skin health in particular? So, if you're, I suppose, if you're looking at skin, you know, and maybe touch on things like eczema a little bit. You yeah, know, you, for sure. You, you, so, if you're looking at the, you know, you've got the stratum corneum in the barrier. You've got the extracellular lipid matrix. So you can see where we're going with that one. Um, and then you've got the third area, and this is the genetic component when it certainly comes to things like eczema. Um, and that's the, the keratin fibrils, which are aggregated by something called filagrin. Um, and so you know, that's extracellular lipid matrix. It's 25% cholesterol. So if you've got a super low cholesterol diet, it's going to affect your skin hydration, how healthy your skin is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 15% fatty acids, 50% ceramides. You know, and ceramides is a sphingosine plus a fatty acid. So, you know, to have that hydration, to make that cement to hold your skin together, you know, fatty acids are absolutely essential. Um, just touching on the third one, um, and this was an Australian professor who discovered the um, filagrin um, and filagrin it's filament aggregating protein so it basically it holds together these little fibrils and holds the structure together and we know there's different genetic variations of these um, that are linked to, to eczema but, but not everyone so if you've got I suppose one of the variations you've got 47% of people with eczema have it but not everyone with that gene has has eczema. So as we talked before, Ben, and it, just because you have a gene doesn't mean you get it. It means your risk factors have changed a little bit. And so you might need to be a little bit more careful with some things um, that you do. But but filagrin is, it, it is it's, it's absolutely essential. It's also broken down into something called natural moisturizing um, factor as well. So uh, all of these things together, you've got to think what's making up the cement to make my skin healthy in the first place. So we've got the immune regulation on one side, then you've got the structure in the other. And you've got remember, you know, the skin's a massive organ. You know, mm. if you, you know, it's and we talk about is that being you know, the biggest organ in the body and it's got a high turnover rate. So your macros are really important. Skin's what 75 kilogram mass, probably about three and a half to four kilograms. You know, so it's wow. a heart's what 
400 grams. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the energy that's going to use the basic protein structures it needs. You know, when we think skin, sometimes, you know, we think just the face, but we got to forget there's a lot of it. So healthy skin, yes, there are all of those essential nutrients and micros, but actually you also need, you know, the high protein intake is really important for, for good skin health as well. Yeah, protein intake is an interesting one as well because obviously different proteins have different kind of uh, amino acid profiles. And you've got plant-based, which is like fairly lower in leucine. And we've got this surgence or resurgence of collagen uh, supplements, yep. which are extremely high in glycine and other amino acids as well, but pr primarily glycine. And um, what do you think of that and so some, of the, some of the research behind that as well? Yeah, so I've looked into this in a fair bit of detail. And, and actually, in March last year was the first good um, review of, I think it was 27 different randomized controlled trials um, looking at, um, at, at collagen peptides. Yes. Um, so the collagen is a, is a massive molecule. So you know, that would just pass through your gut without you being able to touch it. Um, and I have to remember that proline, hydroxyproline with other two amino acids are certainly very high in it as well. Yeah. Um, and so you can go, okay, fine, you smash this up, you get some of the amino acids that make up your skin. So that's kind of the way I'd thought of it for a while. I was kind of like, mm, really? So nice. So maybe you're deficient <laughs> in them. As you know, if you're deficient in something and you give it to it, it helps. But just having loads of it around isn't going to do much. Um, but actually, the mechanism is now better understood. So it's actually an enzyme inhibitor is how it works. So it's um, the bioactive peptides, the little small peptides, inhibit um, something called MMP1 and MMP6. So these matrix metalloproteases mm -hmm. that break down collagen um, right. in the skin. So actually, what you're doing is slowing down the breakdown of your own collagen by tricking the body, it seems that they've got lots of broken fragments of collagen. And so it seems that there's a negative feedback mechanism. You stop breaking down your own collagen. The, the dose in the studies was really important. So if you're thinking about taking collagen peptides for skin, it was marine collagen, not bovine collagen, which has got mm -hmm. a slightly different makeup. It seems um, to be um, high absorb higher absorption rate, right, as well, marine? A higher absorption rate, and I think the bioactive peptides that are formed are different. Right. Um, okay. So, the bovine ones. Better tell my to be... girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bovine ones tend to kind of have amino acid peptides that kind of derive from you know, the bone and all the other parts, whereas the marine peptides are just from from fish skin. Mm -hmm. And the studies were actually showed that also for joint pain. Um, but because it's the same MMP enzymes that um, are munching away at the collagens in your cartilage right. that are causing, say, at 10 grams um, after four weeks, they showed there was a significant reduction in joint pain. Um, a dose for skin, you need seven grams a day. So a few capsules aren't going to do it. So hence why if you're going to, if you're going to take collagen, take it as a powder, yeah. mix it in your smoothie, whatever. Um, um, reduces fine lines and wrinkles, improves hydration in the skin as well. So, so yeah, for a long time, very skeptical about collagen peptides. But, and again, I, I'll, I'll give you that paper, which kind of brings it all, to, all those papers together. So, yep, evidence is pretty strong for collagen. That'd be great. I'll link to that. 
Quick pause, we're thrilled to say that our sponsor for this podcast today is Human People. Human People is a personalized health platform set up by functionally trained doctors and nutritionists right here in the UK, and they're on a mission to give you a healthier, longer, and more productive life. When we start to feel a bit tired, get aches, pains, or brain fog, it can be a challenge to work out the root cause of that problem and how we can solve it. Well, human people are offering a solution. They empower you to better understand your health issues and use AI technology to provide clear, actionable steps to help you meet your goals. Choose between blood, DNA, and gut tests to look for common nutritional deficiencies and important gene SNPs and get your personalized recommendations reviewed by a doctor and all for less than a price of your daily coffee. The quality of their supplements is excellent and their recyclable packs means no more plastic bottles filling up your cupboard. Better for you, better for the planet. Head over to humanpeople.co slash functional health and use code functional health or one word at checkout to get 10% off any of their tests. And if you purchase any of their bundles, you'll get six months of a high quality omega-3 supplement absolutely free. Feel better, live healthier, and start your journey today at humanpeople.co slash functional health. Back to the show. Interestingly, because um, people use different collagens for different ailments, and I've seen chicken cartilage utilized for joints specifically. So I'm wondering whether that's one of the mechanisms as well, and they, they act on a different metalloprotease. Um, cause I know people look at, and you know what, this is not my field, but like different types of collagen, collagen type one, two, three, five, ten, seem to, seems to be fairly, um, what's the word people use them the most. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. So, so it depends kind of really what you're, what you're targeting. I have to check about whether it's bovine for joints as well as not, but I know that mm. certainly a lot of the, a lot of the studies were we're certainly done with marine collagen but actually one of my bugbears when and actually we touched on this earlier when it came to giving any support in, in the interest of supplement is first of all you know should i take it or not you know does science add up the second one is what's the dose you know it's so often you kind of go hey take a couple of collagen pills it's like there is zero evidence that a low dose um collagen peptide has those inhibitory properties if you're going to Go down that route. At least make sure you, you you kind of get a dose that's got you know some scientific evidence behind it. Yes, of course, of course, yeah. And there are lots of supplements out there which I think is significantly underdosed and cost an absolute bomb. But they've got wonderful packaging. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, no, I agree. I agree. Actually, something we were talking about before the show, um, and that was, I've been using in skin for a while, and things like um, resveratrol. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, this is fascinating, something that I've never heard anyone else use before. So, yeah, please dive into that. Well, resveratrol was kind of, you know, I'm sure you know, it was kind of sent red wine sales through the roof. And kind of yes. this is the reason for the French paradox that's, you know, <laughs> the, the 0.9 milligrams in a glass of red wine is, you know, is having this effect. It's just kind of wistful thinking. Um, yeah. However, it doesn't but, stop me drinking it. No, exactly. <laughs> you know that you're topping it up, and you, you know you're, you're helping. You're helping that. that little bit That's extra. what I tell myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but certainly all the kind of research done with resveratrol, like we kind of, it's an antioxidant. It's kind of like fine, but can that really be the reason why? You know, a lot of clinical studies show that it does include, improve the appearance of the skin. Mm. Um, it works on mTOR. It works on AMPK. In it as well, quite yes. you know, significant impact. 
and obviously that has a big impact on the skin as well. So actually is the mechanism that we were thinking resveratrol was so helpful. Actually, it's great it was, but, but did we kind of get that all a bit back to front? Right, okay. So what's the mechanism behind that? Why is resveratrol helpful? I mean, everyone knows it's a, an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, but I assume it has effects on the inflammation within the skin or is it doing something else entirely? mTOR, when you increase mTOR, obviously it's going to increase muscle and fat. Yes. This, this is where our old friend IGF-1 comes back again. Right, yep. So inhibit mTOR, reduce IGF-1. Mm. So that's kind of one of the mechanisms. How do you um, inhibit mTOR in increased ANPK? So resveratrol, you know, we know, has its mechanisms of, of inhibiting mTOR activation so why is mTOR for... such a problem in that regard i mean I so mTOR, let's mTOR. relate that to eczema and acne so so i think probably more so for acne in that you know high mTOR activation is driving igf1 and so igf1 is the link really if you can get the igf1 down you're stopping that significant skin turnover then you're helping, you know, you're not clogging up the pores as much. Obviously, skin is a big target of longevity as well. You know, old looking skin as well. And it can down a whole other route of looking at things like X differentiation and you know, having these senescent cells that are sitting in the skin, you know, secreting things that they probably shouldn't do. They're not behaving healthily like you know, normal skin cells. Can we help stop that or even reduce reduce that so kind of thinking forward into the into the future i think there's these longevity molecules that people are targeting at the moment certainly have their have their place in the skin because if we are going to live longer it might feel great but i'm not sure you want to look like a 130 year old on the <laughs> yeah, <next that's> it. <laughs> i'm not saying this is for the being people but you know it's it is something that affects affects how you how you feel you know affects your self-esteem um affects you look in the mirror and it's not that people want to look younger i think people want to look healthy yes absolutely right absolutely right and it does affect people's self-esteem and you know especially we've touched upon acne we've kind of focused on that actually it's something which does affect people in their youth primarily i mean it can affect older adults and certainly does but those that that's the time where you kind of want to be confident in yourself and people can just feel just well awful about they don't want to see people i remember right i'm gonna give you my anecdote now i remember having a severe breakout one time and just not wanting to go into school this is probably when i was like 15 but it's that bad that i didn't want anyone else to see me i mean that is i think i tolerated that time quite well but if i wasn't a confident person when i was younger I can't imagine how damaging that would be on someone's mental health. Or indeed now, if um, when adults have flare-ups like this, how it would affect them? Yeah, you know, so look, it has, a, it has enormous mental impact. And it's, I think it's at a time of life, as you say, that your self-esteem, you're still finding yourself. You know, you're not that solid adult, you know, who you are. Probably under microscope a lot at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's the time when you're looking for a boyfriend and girlfriend. And so it's, you know, th- there's lots of kind of things going on at that time. And, and so the adolescent one is obviously the big one. 
that form female hormonal acne that happens later on in life to, to one out of five women is is the other one that you know has has a really big impact and you know and often there's and it's quite simple stuff it's understanding the mechanism what's going on you know for example you know the skin barrier skin ph is 4.7 mm-hmm. even just using a, a gentle cleanser to cleanse your skin can make a big difference because every time you use um you wash your skin you increase it, the ph by about 1.5 to 2 all of a sudden you have to then produce lots more fatty acids and all the seed to try to neutralize it or you can slap on a glycerol derived moisturizer um, to neutralize it and clog up all your pores so it's it's often just that gentle information it's kind of like use an, an acid cleanser and some of the simple ones i recommend are things like cetaphil you mean it's inexpensive get your diet right you know cutting out those things like dairy and sugar, as we as we as we mentioned, and that takes you a long way to getting on on top of that. Sometimes you have to go further, and that's why we have this ladder that you can like, go up different steps and you know, adding in things to dry out the semen, like retin A, etc. But um, it's one not to suffer in silence with, mm-hmm. and and also when you do try to make changes in adolescent, your skin takes four weeks to turn over, so you're unlikely to get a result from something within two days. Yeah, so of course. So we've, we've spoken about a wide range of things now, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, kind of gut health and how that's linked to gut skin access, um, resveratrol and kind of their omega-3s, how they lower the inflammation as well. And also you touched upon mTOR and AMPK, which I want to dive into right now. <laughs> and and I have to say, uh, when it comes to kind of, you know, things like you know, mTOR, AMPK, you know, you probably know a lot more about it than I do. It's something that, we've been looking into more recently, which clearly right. has been you know, pretty strong. So, so I'm not going to try to um, kind of bamboozle you say, actually for anti-aging, you know, should we be going down the NMN resveratrol route yeah. and things like berberine more than some of these other things? Um, I mean, David, so, you know, David Sinclair? Yeah. He kind yeah. of pioneered that movement and he now looks like a child. He's got, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what he's been doing. <laughs> Um, yeah, it is. It is fascinating. I'm. I'm not convinced by all his spiel, but you yeah. know, I think that there's clearly some good science in there, and all the Yamanaka factor stuff is is absolutely fascinating. And whoever can work out how to make those work properly, um, which he claims that they're in, in, on on the process of doing. In know, animals, it's, though. Yes, um, I think he's has he he has done it in animals, hasn't he? Has, has he, he done it in animals already? See, you, you'll yeah. be ahead of this than I am, I think. I th- yeah, I think he did. I think they were. I think it was kind of some of the stuff they were doing around multipotent stem cells, mm-hmm. you know, and and managing to use the Yamanaka factors to kind of reverse them and stuff. So, often, you know, it's, I, you know, it's it's still out there a little bit, but you know, the, the two big areas are, you know. Can you can you turn these on in a way that doesn't make your life utterly miserable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is, I think some we probably should touch on because you know, I, I think I think a lot of David Sinclair's longevity stuff is that yeah, fast all the time. Don't ever <laughs> drink any alcohol. Spend your time in the freezing cold. Yeah. And do high intensity exercise. It's like, okay, right. Are you living? Yeah, exactly. Suffering is is what turns these genes on. It's kind of like not only do you live longer, but you know it feels like you're living twice as long as that as well. 
So, you know, you know, I think it's, you know, you want to, you know, live that high quality life as well. Um, you know, there's a balance in there somewhere. I don't know. What's what's your opinion on the, you know, that longevity stuff, or as you know, what angle do you want to talk about from? With the longevity stuff, I find it fascinating because with longevity. When we talk about longevity, we're talking about lifespan. And because of that, it basically reduces your risk of every other condition, like cancers and things like that. So a lot of oncologists I know are actually moving into the, the, the so-called longevity space because you're getting, like, minimizing cancer, well, the risk of cancers through some of these uh, through some of yeah. these molecules, which I think is fascinating as well and something which I didn't, even though it sounds incredibly obvious, is something that I didn't consider like reducing your risk of heart disease and everything like that. I remember um, metformin being utilized um, early on in the longevity space and then people looking at berberine having similar um, benefits in terms of like uh, blood glucose disposal and things like that. But also, doesn't it affect mTOR um, in a way? Yeah, because it's a hyperglycemic. So, um, so any hyperglycemic will um will inhibit mTOR so basically mTOR is, is the detector when there's lots of nutrients around it fires up you know when it's um when it's low so you know i think that's one of the mechanisms isn't that you know, it's a sensor by i think it may well have a direct effect as well but i think metformin and berberine you know there's some trials that have shown that they have very similar effects you know it can be that potent um so much so that you know when i give people berberine um, and I often say, look, you know, if you're having a big gym day, you probably don't want to be taking berberine mm-hmm. because, you know, you might find you're just a bit low in energy on those days. Yeah, for sure. I understand that. Um, and it, it's, it's definitely use, useful in terms of if people are taking. I mean, I always think if someone's going out, it's not something that you should necessarily do. But if you're going out with friends and you're having a high glycemic uh, meal, bowl of pasta, a pizza in the evening yeah. for like a treat, um, when maybe you haven't worked out that day, although I hope you have, um, <laughs> or, or moved very much and you have an office job, it can be very helpful in those circumstances because otherwise you get huge, huge deviations in blood glucose. And because it's late in the day, they seem to last way longer. So the AUC, the area under the curve, if you wear a CGM, continuous blood glucose monitor, using lots of acronyms here, um, <laughs> is, the, is so much greater later in the day than if you had that meal earlier in the day. And that's something which people don't consider as well. Um, yeah. And that's when something like berberine can be vastly beneficial in those circumstances, even in someone that's healthy. Ben, did you use um, berberine if you do what, what type of doses do you use? I did use berberine. Um, I don't anymore. I, try, I tried a few different types. I used bitter melon um, as another component. But berberine, I think I used 500 milligrams from memory. So like a pretty significant dose. But um, I, I know some people... I remember someone, I mean, this is slightly irrelevant, using something for SIBO and it was in like the 4,500 milligram dosage. And I was like, that is incredibly high. But I don't know what you think. Yeah, look, you know, we have used, um, you know, SIBO at, you know, one gram before each meal for when, when we're treating SIBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, that was one we haven't even touched on is the link between SIBO and rosacea. Oh, um, yeah. So, when in our, in our clinic, when we've treated lots of people, um, hang on, rosacea. Let's just define that first, um, before before jumping sure, into. Sure, sure. So rosacea is that 
any red butterfly pattern that you see across the nose and cheeks, sometimes a little bit on the chin and on the forehead. And it's a, you know, a vascular redness on the skin. And, you know, it's a chronic condition that, you know, we struggle to understand the cause of it. Endemic in the UK, as many as 70% of occasions you know, have a degree of rosacea. And, you know, and often they're like, oh, it's nothing to do with food, but but wine makes it worse and 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 spicy food. And you're like, okay, so is, is, is that not food then? And they're like, what? You know, maybe that's different. It's like, yeah, of course, there's a there's a big gut skin link. And and after years, and this is kind of actually one of the conditions that drew me into kind of functional skin health, was that you would laser some patients, it would go away for a year, you would laser other patients, it would come back within a month. Mm. And you're kind of well these are clearly two different patient groups and actually redness and skin, you know, these kind of neovascularization, these new vessels, well, surely that's, you know, it must be some type of reaction going on. You can treat it with topical antibiotics, things like um, ivermectin helps reduce it really, really well. So whether it's a parasite and some people say things like, these little mites called dermadex in the skin, but not everybody with dermadex gets rosacea. So, you know, what's what's driving it? And there's been quite a few clinical trials going on looking at SIBO and also patients with high amounts of H. pylori, a bacteria that causes um, gastritis. And in one trial, I think it was 40 people they took, um, of, the, of the people they tested, it's something like 46% of them had SIBO. So they kind of got rid of the rest of the group and then treated all the SIBO patients. I think it, they went down the antibiotic route, the Rifaximin, Metronidazole route, mm-hmm. and they had certainly a 90% plus result in getting rid of people's rosacea once they'd, once they'd treated the gut. So that's phenomenal. In that, and, that, and that's where we started doing the clinics. So that's where we started mm-hmm. you know, doing SIBO testing when we started looking at using herbal antibiotics as well as um, pharmaceutical antibiotics to, to treat the SIBO. Um, and, you know, you get people, not only is the skin better, but as you know, the bloating disappears and they end up getting, you know, different clothes. And, you know, often they're kind of, oh, well, will this help me lose weight? And it's kind of like, look, that's not what we're treating, but you'll probably end up losing weight. And once that inflammation disappears, you know, mm-hmm. it's much easier. If, you know, if you're inflamed, it's so difficult to lose weight. So we, we've had... Some incredibly grateful people that kind of look like, I want to come in here to have my skin fixed. <laughs> and, and that's a great example of how it's so systemic. And it, you know, but not all rosacea is driven by SIBO. So there's yes. other factors. What you're seeing is you know, an inflammation on the skin. But for some people, at the moment, we can work out what that is and, mm. and we, can, we can do something about it. It's fascinating to me that the gut can cause so many different skin conditions and also leaky gut seems to be a prerequisite for lots of different autoimmune conditions as well, or certainly a factor in them. Um, and autoimmunity is, is associated with a lots of different skin ailments as well. You know, a lot of the toll-like receptors in the body have, have receptors for lipopolysaccharides. Lipopolysaccharide is, is the fragments that you get when something leaks out of the gut. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have a mechanism to fire up in a crazy way when, when that happens. The body really doesn't like an unhealthy gut. And the foods that we now eat, they're more inflammatory. They cause more issues. You know, I've got 
my middle son has significant gluten issues. Um, he doesn't uh, have the, the HLA, is it HLA D27 for, um, or I can't remember which, which of the, um, yeah, I don't remember either. But, um, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, is it just the people with that haplotype end up getting really bad gluten sensitivities, whereas the people without that haplotype still get it, but they just don't get it as bad because they still produce antibodies. If you look at CT scans, they still produce plaques in the brain from gluten. And you know, that's <laughs> my scare tactic when people have been kind of having clear gluten issues in the clinic. I, they kind of go, well, you know, I know I get a bit of brain fog. And you know, I don't know if you've seen any of the CT scans where you see kind of atrophy, you see literally white plaques like it, you know. No way. Like little infarcts in the brain that, that are caused by gluten. So, because I knew you know, it caused you... leakage of the blood brain barriers, that does make sense. Um, yeah. but I, I've, I've not seen the CT scans, that is something which I definitely need to look up. If you want and to persuade CT... anyone, <laughs> yeah, well, but the CT scans, and that's in, in patients that are have gluten insensitivity as well, not, not just celiacs. Mm-hmm. So, um, but my son, when he was seven, started basically crying from joint pain at night. And so we kind of eliminated an elimination diet. And I remember the day that we introduced a little bit of gluten. In fact, he had a little bit of sushi. And all it was, was, was the gluten in a bit of soy sauce. And he almost right. needed to be carried back to the car. He was in so much pain from it. You know, so, you know, and I, I know you could do a whole podcast on, you know, why on earth has gluten caused this massive immune reaction? And, you know, and it can be quite controversial because I'm certainly one of those people who's like, Oh, no, don't take away my night, my nice crusty <laughs> white bread. <laughs> Finally, we now kind of tend to actually just avoid it. I think that was mostly because Peroni got out of gluten-free beer, so it was okay. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, then it's okay. I think Australia <laughs> may have one as well now, so it's in luck. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say... Not sponsored but, by Peroni, but you know, if you're no. listening. Yeah, if you, if you are listening, yeah, any beer company... <laughs> Um, what was going to say the podcast one first podcast I ever did was with Dr. Tom O'Brien he's like the gluten guy <laughs> ah, okay okay so you, you've covered this so my apologies I clearly haven't read that uh, listened to that one no 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 but... I, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't expect you to but he was um, he definitely covered it in depth and we spoke about because he, he written a book it was like the autoimmune fix and he's hammers home the message about gluten and he also brought another bat book out and i'm gonna butcher butcher the name but something like you can fix your brain or something similar and he talks about the leakage of the blood brain barrier due to gluten and some other effects for example if you have a sensitivity to nightshades it can also have a similar effect as well but gluten seems to be um significant and also one which you know some people don't have any symptoms got symptoms at all but it manifests like your son elsewhere in the body joints brain fog things of that nature i still get brain fog occasionally from food and i still don't know what it's from i don't think it's gluten because we in general we we basically stay away from gluten but i need to i need to figure that one out <laughs> is, it, is it when you have high glycemic index foods not necessarily no no, I actually think it's probably more driven from... I mean, we, this could be another podcast in itself, but this it, it could be more driven from mast cells, like histamine. Um, but, yeah, but, it's a high histamine. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's something which I'm diving into, but it's a, it's a long road, I think. 
sometimes, especially when I'm quite dialed in anyway. Um, and yep. normally I can just figure out what it is, but it could be whatever stress has caused something. And it's just something which is just tipping it. Uh, what's it called? I guess just overfilling my bucket of resilience. So therefore I'm just manifesting in brain fog when normally I'd be able to tolerate a certain food and now I can't. But it's probably a temporary thing. Well, at least I'm hoping. Yeah, you know, the, the gluten um, kind of glycemic index one, because I'd often put down brain fog or feeling really tired um, if, I, if I'd had a pizza or a high pasta meal oh, to, yeah. to glycemic index, which it can be. Um, until a couple of times my son, I had pasta, which was kind of non-gluten pasta. I was like, oh, I don't seem to have the same brain fog. Oh, right. um, and so clearly have a gluten sensitivity as well. And so, you know, I, I don't feel well from it, but I certainly get a bit of brain fog and quite enjoy the fact actually. I, I also find my exercise recovery is really affected. I ache way more if I've had a little gluten and done exercise on the same day and on the next day. So maybe clearly it would make sense. My son's got a problem with it. There's probably something in my genes that's, that's not a big fan of it as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think probably quite eye-opening to some people as well. I speak to a lot of functional medicine practitioners and doctors in general, and there is a split between people who think gluten's a major issue and some that think it's not an issue at all. But I do think if you evaluate the different symptoms that people have, I think it's probably a more, more of an issue than people think, even though we maybe don't understand exactly why yet. Um, yeah, but... look, I like, you know, Gerard Mullins, the, he's a professor of medicine, assistant professor of medicine, and it's, I mix it up, I with Yellow John Hopkins, but he's, he's a gastro GI surgeon, and you know, he talks a lot about, about gluten. And you know, in that, you know, it's a long, difficult amino acid to break down. And so, it's probably one of the more difficult molecules. And so if your gut's not in a great place, then it's going to cause an issue. Mm -hmm. Whereas if your gut is in a great place, it's not going to cause an issue. So, you know, actually, is it the problem or almost is it an indicator of you're not that well? And I know for some people it's not. Some people it's, it's they have a, you know, a massive autoimmune reaction to it. But if you're ever going to test how healthy your gut is, you know, it's probably one of the things that... <laughs> you know, you can do to do that because he's a very strong believer in that. You no, know, I, you know, I don't want people cussing out food groups. You know, once your your gut's healthy enough, you should be eating gluten again. And and I buy that. You know, in that yeah, me too. if you can do eat it, you know, don't be restrictive, but also be sensitive to the fact that you know if it's making you feel tired, a bit rubbish, it's it's not going to be doing you good. So it's having that little bit of insight um, into into what's going on. And in particular, people have no problems all their life, and all of a sudden they do have problems. What's what's the trigger? What's what's changed? You know, yeah, and the is it a gut health issue? Is it damage over time as well? Like I'm also very conscious of that yeah. that it could be like small incremental damage over time, and then you've just you've got to the stage where you have an inflammatory response. But some for some people, it's yeah. systemic, like joint pain, or maybe it manifests in autoimmune disease um, before you've even noticed anything else. You know, you've got to the edge of that cliff and, and finally mm, that's it that's it's, it it's something that would that we actually brushed uh over even though i want to touch upon it now because i think it's important as a tool that clinicians can use and certainly everyone can use with regards to skin health in relation to probably both eczema and acne is fasting 
because you mentioned mTOR and AMPK. And one of the easiest ways that everyone can do to lower mTOR and increase AMPK is fast for a certain period of time. Um, and then not only is fasting in terms of the time that you're not eating beneficial, but also you have less spikes in IGF-1 in mTOR when you do eat just because you have a reduced eating window. Yeah, you know, completely agree. It's a simple one to do. And um, I see someone told me recently that, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day is actually a marketing slogan from Kellogg's. Yes, um, yes. So, you know, it's kind of, well, actually, some people it works, some people it doesn't. You know, I've never been a breakfast person. I've also had carried this guilt around me for years. I'm missing my best meal of the day. <laughs> and saying, uh, I'm, oh, I'm, no. I'm Walter... He's like, uh, Walter Longo's works come out on autophagy and the benefits of fasting. So, like, yeah, great. I was doing it all along. You know, well, you know, who knows what will happen in another 10 years' time. But, but yeah, like, I, I think fasting is a, a really healthy way to kind of balance sugar. We know the long-term benefits um, as well. Yeah, 100%. I actually cover um, fasting in, a, in another podcast. If people are interested, I'll link to it in the show notes. But just in terms of this, I've looked at research which looks at like prolonged fasting over three days and as a dramatic, well, acute, but dramatic reduction in IGF-1. It's really significant. Yes. However, I think with, with everyone, I don't think fasting is, is beneficial for everyone, especially if you're coming from a nutrient deficient basis to begin with, or if you have a history of eating disorders or anything like that, it needs to be monitored extremely carefully. I also think for women, and this is my experience, is that if they're menstruating, it can be negative depending on what time of the month they do try and do it. They can have less energy, for example, and if they if it's prolonged in terms of like even a 16, eight, fasting for 16 hours of the day, eating for an eight-hour eating window, they can just have dysregulated hormones. But I don't know whether that, I imagine that's only for a subset of the population, but I think it's important to consider as well. I haven't used fasting for treating acne. I suppose it's kind of been kind of giving people advice on on, on diet, the types of foods these and not it, anything that reduces IGF-1, um, certainly for hormonal acne. Um, but it's interesting you talk about the hormonal ones because we always have to be careful trying to understand in female hormonal acne, you know, mm. kind of what's happening. Are, are they kind of a time of menopause war or perimenopause where the estrogen is starting to drop off? Um, or at the period of time when actually you know, there's a lot of estrogen dominance going on and it's normalizing those hormones. And, and for some people, actually hormone replacement therapy is, is actually a big benefit, works really well. And you know, I think that for some people, the hormone dysregulation, perimenopause is so significant and that, that actually sometimes hormones are the only end. And I guess it's exploring all these avenues first before you get to that point, right? Because you don't actually know what's going to be the beneficial element. Or, or maybe you do. What's your experience? Is it normally obvious for people, what's, for, for your clients or patients, what's going to work? I would say 90% of my patients take them off the obvious stuff in it, and it's dairy and sugar. And often I will say, particularly it seems to be patients with cystic acne, so like not saying never eat gluten again, but cut it for the next couple of months till we get mm. on top of this. Um, I always get get this skincare right. Um, quite often I will use a topical vitamin A, known as retin A or tretinoin, yeah. um, because it just reduces the sebum really quickly. 
um, and it's not the long-term solution, but you know, when you're in that area, it's, you can reduce it. Um, for hormonal acne, um, adding in DIM, adding in GLA, adding in krill oil, vitamin D, and we've measured, and you know, I like doing this with a blood test, but actually even without a blood test, it's either gonna work or it's not. And for a lot of people, that's enough. It's rare that you need to go to stronger treatments or it's only if someone has really, really difficult cystic acne where you're trying to get on top of it quickly mm. to avoid scarring in the long term. These days, I ever have to have the racketeering conversation. But if, if it's a young person who's going to scar badly, maybe they want to just jump on it quickly, but preferably not because you know there's, there's so many side effects from from it and particularly some pretty significant psychological effects. yeah of course of course people will google what they should use on their skin and i'm sure every practitioner or nutritional therapist or indeed person who's who's listened to this i've probably heard of people putting toothpaste on their acne and things like that what what's the as a as a funny side note before we end, what's the what's the funniest thing that you've heard of people using to try and get rid of their acne? Yeah, I have heard the toothpaste one. I was never quite sure <laughs> what the evidence is. was. But but actually a little hack. If you are using retin A, you always start off using it very slowly. So every third night I will often mm. cause an outbreak in that first two weeks. So I've ah, okay. a number of people I know use retin A, so oh, it didn't work. Give me an outbreak. It's like, yeah, that's what it does. First two weeks will often cause an outbreak. Um, if you're also using Retin-A and that little spot pops up, you tend to use it at night, no moisturizer afterwards. Um, start using it every third night, then every second night. Some people only ever use it every second night. A little dab of Retin-A is the king of drying out those spots. Oh, so, really? um, and it's the scripts and strength, which you know you can normally get from your GP on the NHS. Okay, that is um, a great hack. Sorry, I'm trying to think of a, of a funny one for you, but um, <laughs> well, I think I've said about the toothpaste, and I think everyone's heard of that. I've heard lemon juice before. Um, tea tree oil seems to be actually. You know, I've used tea tree oil. It seems to work for me, but it just it dries it up very mildly, and I don't really get big spots anymore. So it's probably something which would work. Well, if it well, was any fruit acid will help. Yes, yeah. you break them down the commodore, a little plug, say um, using you know like folic or salicylic acids yeah of course. it's a really nice way that's the other thing we stop people never scrub your skin just irritate some more i mean something if you got a sore would you start attacking it so things like <laughs> chemical exfoliants are, are the gentle way to to kind of take away those blackheads and you know allow the sebum to get onto the skin because the problem is once you have a comedone you create an anaerobic environment and the acne bacteria loves anaerobic environment so mm. that's where it goes crazy and um, Whereas if you keep an acidic environment on the skin, that stops it from um, from from overgrowing too much because it's a normal yeah. commensal. It's on all of our skins. I mean, that's a really important point, and I don't think many people, including myself, considered that. Like in terms of, a lot of people scrub their skin. A lot of people find like um, on packagings when you when you buy a cleanser, it's like got micro particles in or you know charcoal or something, and it's meant to get rid of the and it's abrasive, right? But that actually can make your skin more oily over time. And like you said about the pH, that's something that I didn't consider either. So maybe just washing your skin with a gentle cleanser or even water would be beneficial over those things initially yeah, and using chemicals as a as a way to slough off the dead skin cells and dry up the 
the sebum. Yes, it's a gentle cleanser. So things like cetaphil are very good for, for acne. We use another one. And milky lotion cleansers are all really good. Even micellar water. Normal water itself is actually quite harsh. to give skin. Okay, um, so, good to know. So it, yeah, so it's using just plain water. It tends to dry it out quite a bit. Say, so, I say, gentle cleanser is, is the is is the right thing to use. And actually, gentle cleanser plus a sunscreen in it, and then using something a little bit active is is kind of the basis of good anti-aging skincare as well, um, because protecting those that DNA in those cells where you get those you know, thymine dimers forming, which kind of messes up your DNA is really important. So you know, if you've got Caucasian skin, you, have, you don't have that natural protection. So a moisturizer with a little bit of SPF in it is, is definitely an easy way. Yeah, I turn into a tomato. So yeah, 100% agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, brilliant. Jeff, I've absolutely loved this conversation. It truly has been amazing. I just want to finish up with, uh, with lastly, the barriers to change. Um, and what I mean by that is, what do you find with your patients that stops them from implementing the treatments that you have? Or maybe it's lifestyle factors and things like that. Because quite often people know what to do, but don't necessarily do it. Is there anything which you found which is a, which is a key determinant of that? Yeah, and... and um really important because you know someone walks into my room in most of the time you know i can two minutes and sit and down i know what the issue is going to be um i know where the problem lies i know where the solution lies um but actually it's okay how do you help them affect change mm -hmm. difficult for all of us you know and uh and it's one of the reasons that we start with human people was because you would tell people oh look you're deficient and you're going to be deficient in this and this or you know, let's have a look at your genes or, and, and they would just look at you blankly. And so I realized that you've got to motivate people. And certainly I find this very much for men, you know, we like dashboards, we like numbers and, and actually it's a, it, it really helps behavior change in men kind of go, well, here's your data, here's where you are, here's where you need to be. And they're like, okay, what do I need to do? And and so that next step is trying to make it easy. And, you know, that's why, you know, I'm not a nutrition professor at Yarbrough. And so, you know, I, I do work with um, with Christine Billy, who mm. does a lot of nutrition stuff because uh, that whole behavior change when it comes to food, you know, with me, it's got to look, you know, there's some kind of big macros you need to cut out. Um, and so, how can you motivate people It's kind of trying to make it easy and so that's why you know i find we can often speed things up by giving you know nutritional supplements mm -hmm. but nutritional supplements you know if if we go right you know we're in an eczema here it's a you know tea helper too strong what can we do can we boost the glutathione the vitamin d omega-3 and make it easy that's why we kind of you know again we give these little packs, so it's all pre-packed. People, or I just give people a script and say, right, take this, this, and this. You know, go and take this for the next eight weeks, um, and making it easy. So motivate someone and make it easy. They start to see the improvements, and you then hope that starts to get them to contemplate more significant change. Where it's like, okay, well, you know, I could take a fish oil, or maybe I could start eating fish two or three times a week. And so it's that bridge into those, into those healthier changes. And 
if you're like me, you know, I don't eat a perfect diet all the time. Sometimes I clinic, I'm super busy and all of the rest. And that's why I still like to back that up with, you know, target supplementation. But I only want to take what I need. And that's why, you know, I go down the road, I measure. That gives me the motivation to go, right, I need to kind of keep improving this and, mm. and make it easy. Yeah, love that. Completely agree with it all. Um, final question before we finish. What is the most impactful health change that you've made in your life and why? So I would say when I, yeah, I would say probably when, when my, like a lot of people, when their kids are born, you know, for the first time, somebody is born who you want to outlive you, you know, and it's, it's this kind of real looking at your own mortality and I was probably, uh, so my, my fat percentage was a little bit higher than it should be at that stage. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, is that, well, this isn't cool, you know, and, and I can remember going on a protein heavy diet to try to lose, I lost about two stain at that time. And that for me helps me to start getting back to exercising more regularly and running more regularly. Um, it was kind of around the similar time where I started getting more interested in nutrigenomics and genetics mm -hmm. and understanding how my body worked, which was really impactful for me. So I realized why exercise had never worked for me before. And then I kind of did know. Um, so it was probably that my you know, child being born, weight loss, understanding my body a little bit better and you know i've, I've kept that off and, and kept exercising and ever since so and it comes back to you know health and eating for like food and doing some exercise but really the most impactful health change then was your son being born was my son being born exactly <laughs> exactly uh, no. That's, that was definitely that was the motivating factor you know to yeah. set a change behavior change what caused behavior change okay and a my motivation is I want to, I want to be healthy. I want to be a dad who runs around with my kid when he's older. So I got my motivation and then behavior change was, you know, actually a, a food um, diet that worked for me. Um, and so that made it easy. Um, so, so yeah, those, those were the, the big health changes. Love that story. Thank you for sharing that. Jeff. Yeah. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, but before I let you go, can you please tell everyone where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? At the moment, um, uh, I'm not actually seeing any new places at the moment, but we do have a clinic in Connaught Street um, in London um, because I'm spending all my time on a new project, which is human people. And this is really a way of trying to take the tools that we use in the clinic to make it accessible um, for people to use. So, you know, at-home blood testing. So a lot of things we mentioned today, you know, can I test those easily? And so we've got a platform, which is a CQC regular platform to be able to do that. But also when it comes to genetics, and we, we didn't talk much about genetics today, but there's some, I know you're, um, you know, you know how important it is to understand that certainly motivation and understand how your body works. Um, and we work with a company called Atlas Biomed to, you know, for DNA and microbiome testing, but also we've uh, built in software into the website where it's free for people to upload their 23andMe or even their ancestry um, raw data to give them insight. But the reason we're doing all this is to try to kind of 
tie that knot together is kind of like, okay, you know, what can I do with this that actually makes sense? And so hopefully we can share some good information and that allows people to go on and make those ultimately behavior changes. That's what to me good health is. And having used your platform, um, I can definitely say it's, it's different to other platforms I've used. I won't mention the ones I've used, but I've definitely mentioned them in other podcasts. Because you add the, the functional medicine element, it's quite unique in that regard. And I've not seen that before. Yeah, look, we've, we've really gone to time and with Christine as well in that anything we recommend has to be based on good, solid science. If we're going to the return, we do use a lot of nutritional supplements because that's, that was the easy change that we felt a lot of people could take as their initial change. It's only part of, of health. Ultimately, what we want to do is get you onto eating that amazing diet, but it's making sure that the quality of the supplements is there and also, like we touched on earlier, the strengths of what you're giving is, is actually the right strengths. Mm-hmm. Right forms, absolutely. Okay, brilliant. Jeff, it's been a pleasure again. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to us and I hope that we can do this again soon. Ben, fantastic. Really enjoy chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Just Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.